0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the death of First Lady Rosalind Carter, who was married to Jimmy Carter for 77 years, who will be remembered for the personal and political bravery she displayed in her pioneering efforts to reduce the stigma of mental illness. Joining us is James Fellows, an award-winning author and national correspondent for The Atlantic, he previously worked as President Carter's chief speechwriter and was editor of US News and World Report. He has written a number of books on media and politics and his latest books are China Airborne The Test of China's Future and co-authored with his wife Deborah Fellows, Our Towns, a one hundred thousand mile journey into the heart of America, which was made into an HBO movie, and he blogs at Breaking the News at fallows.substack.com where his latest article is Rosalind Carter Made a Difference Then with the far-right populist Javier Millet who has vowed to exterminate inflation and hack into the state with a chainsaw winning the presidency of Argentina decisively, we will speak with Leopoldo Rodriguez, a professor of international and global studies and urban and public affairs at Portland State University An expert on Argentina, his research focuses on international financial crises, neoliberal reforms, and democracy and sustainable development. Then finally, with Elon Musk praising the election of the chainsaw-wielding madman who just got elected president of Argentina, we will look into Musk's open anti-Semitism, which is being spread to his 170 million followers on his private platform X, formerly Twitter. Joining us to discuss this one-man hate machine, who happens to be the richest man in the world, is Wendy Veer, the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the Chief Communications and Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And joining us now is James Fallows, an award-winning author and national correspondent for The Atlantic. He previously worked as President Carter's chief speechwriter and was editor of U.S. News and World Report. He's written a number of books on media and politics, and his latest books are China Airborne, The Test of China's Future, and co-authored with his wife Deborah, Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, which was made into an HBO movie. Any blogs at breakingthenews at com, where his latest article is Rosalind Carter Made a Difference. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Fellows.
1: Um, Ian, I'm always glad to talk with you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, James. And since you were President Carter's chief speechwriter and clearly worked with Rosalind Carter, who was close to the president uh, sat in on cabinet meetings had her office there didn't she in the in the uh, white house uh,
1: yes she had um, you know most first ladies have the whole you know east wing set up uh, as they're part of the white house but Rosal- rosalind carter was even more present than that for example she was usually at cabinet meetings which i believe first ladies had not done before that but it was a sign of how much um, her husband the president trusted her and relied on her judgment
0: and did anybody have a problem with that? I think
1: it is remarkable in retrospect, i going back sort of the degree of snark in uh, the, the the D.C. media of that era about the Carters basically in two ways. One was a fairly open anti-Southernism. You know, who are these uh, dogpatch yokel people who are coming up in, into uh, to D.C.? And the other was... As for almost any woman, particularly in this this position of being the spouse of a politically powerful man, there was some who-does-she-think-she-is type of pushback. But, uh, you know, it was a long time ago and in a different country.
0: Right, but at the time, I was puzzled by why the American people voted for a twice-divorced Hollywood actor And and I'm talking about the Christian right to the Christian vote in this country over a dedicated Christian who was a Sunday school teacher and a wife who lived a very exemplary Christian life.
1: That is one of many mysteries of the last half century of presidential politics in the U.S. And I think that it was there are a couple things just uh, I would say in response. One is the electoral map in those days was almost unrecognizably different from what we've all come to take take for granted. For example, Jimmy Carter carried every state of the old Confederacy except Virginia, and he lost by a landslide in California. This is when he was running against Gerald Ford in 1976 and was, was able to narrowly unseat Gerald Ford and become president himself. And And Carter, there was a sense of... There was still a Southern Democratic Party, a Southern both white and black Democratic Party in in, in those those days. And uh, the Republicans began their electoral count with California, which, of course, is is hard to even believe now. And I think it was also under Carter, who was himself a man, was and is a man of tremendous faith and who uh, had a large evangelical backing uh, in the 76 campaign that the abortion issue in particular became sort of a weapon, was the beginning of its weaponization by um, the evangelical right. And then also uh, the Roman Catholic meant much of its uh, leadership in the U.S., sort of using that as a wedge against Democrats. So so Carter was the last person of an era of the sort of Southern Democratic Party, although Clinton put some of it together uh, after that, and where, Evangelicals were with him, which now seems surprising for, uh, for Democratic candidates.
0: Yeah, so back in 1980, they voted for this twice-divorced Hollywood actor, Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan, over this good Christian man, Jimmy Carter. The same evangelicals, of course, voted for a thorough heathen, Donald Trump, uh, in 2016, but I think the most outrageous thing that we've just learned, and the suspicion was lingering for many years after Carter's defeat, was we recently learned that the former governor of Texas, Democratic Governor Connolly, he was a part of the so-called October Surprise, where he was a secret envoy of the Reagan campaign, who made a deal with the Ayatollahs, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, to hold on to the hostages which left Jimmy Carter twisting in the wind. And the very day that Reagan was inaugurated, the the hostages came home. So it's pretty appalling. And for somebody that served in the Carter administration, it must be pretty chafing.
1: So it is, again, it is... As somebody who worked for Carter, as I did when I was in my, my mid twenties, it is always sobering me for me to realize, and you know, conditions what I'm about to say here, that most Americans were not even born. When Ronald Reagan was was in off was first taking office, so this is all ancient history. The the way that the contours spread themselves out, and because we all know that Ronald Reagan won two terms as president, and he had this enormous landslide landslide in 1984 against Walter Mondale. The assumption is, oh, that Reagan must have been fated to just trounce Jimmy Carter from the beginning, and it didn't seem that way at the time. You know, at the time it was a much more closely run campaign. Uh, Jimmy Carter himself, uh, to the best of my knowledge, still contends that two things made the difference in that 1980 election. One was, of course, the Iranian, the failed rescue mission for the hostages in Iran uh, in the springtime of that year. And then, of course, the um, the benign term would be shenanigans. Other terms would be worse of the Reagan uh, team working with the Iranians to delay the hostage release until after the election. And the other that Carter took very seriously was um, the primary, the very bitter primary example with uh, Senator Senator Teddy Kennedy. Um, there were a million other things going wrong then. The inflation rate was, uh, you know, the prime interest rate was like 20 percent and gas prices were soaring and many other things that uh, befell Carter. But it was a, a closer race than it seemed. I think everybody um, at the time, everybody in the Carter world, Suspected and assumed that the Reagan team had been dealing with the Iranians, and there's been an accretion of, you know, evidence or even proof uh, in the years since then.
0: So, there, of course, is a contemporary issue now with priming uh, Joe Biden. Many Democrats are not happy. Uh, in fact, the polls indicate that I think a majority of Americans they don't want a rerun of Trump and uh, Biden, but nevertheless. The window is closing on it, but that surely is a a warning, is it not, for the current situation of how you can undermine an incumbent if you have a credible challenge. And Teddy Kennedy, of course, was a very prominent Democrat.
1: Um, Yes, and I think that – so I I have one view about polls, which is that they are – fundamentally useless this far out from a um, from from an election Barack obama was running behind uh <laughs> what what the pollsters described as the generic republican candidate at this time before his reelection run and there's a long um a long sort of history of that of incumbents looking weak even Ronald Reagan looked to be in trouble a year a year before his re-election run you know before his huge landslide win so um the polls are concerning for democrats but i, I think that that should not be um be overemphasized my view on 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 primary challenges is that um is that Even Joe Biden, uh, so sort of doing the layers of the onion here. Number one, does Joe Biden wish he were 15 years younger than he is now? Yes, he does. I wish that, too. I think many other people of any party wish that he were younger. Um, Second peel of that age onion is I think he is a far better president now as an old president, than he would have been as a young president. The two previous times that he made serious um, made serious runs runs for the office uh, back in starting back in 1988 when he was uh, still in his 40s, and because what he has seen as an old president is experience of how things go right and wrong and how you assemble a team and how you not get panicked in the judgments you make and how to think about you know four or five steps in advance so I think we've mainly seen the virtues of his his age in terms of what he has done in office has been at least as much a plus than than a, a minus um, then in terms of primaries you're right that a serious primary challenge to an incumbent um, president almost always is a precursor of defeat in the general election. It happened with the first George Bush when Pat Buchanan ran the, a, against him, happened certainly with uh, Jimmy Carter, um, with Teddy Kennedy, it happened back in 1968 with Lyndon Johnson. So I think that uh, many of the cooler heads in the Democratic Party say, yes, there are tensions, there are all sorts of issues that need to be resolved within the party, but a serious primary challenge is likely to be destructive.
0: So going back to Rosalind Carter, I mean, Jimmy Carter himself, of course, is in hospice care as well. They were married for 77 years. That in itself is pretty extraordinary. And he, most people believe, and I think rightly so, that He's had an incredible post-presidency, and she's been a big part of that in you know, her advocacy for mental health treatment. And I believe when she was the first lady, when he was the governor of of Georgia, she experienced that kind of hellish snake pit way that people were incarcerated into in asylums, um, and that became a kind of life's work. So, tell us about her what motivated her in that regard. Why was uh, mental health, and of course, in the contemporary sense, mental health has come up as an issue now, albeit in a rather uh, misguided way about, you know, how to solve the rash of assault weapons, you know, mass shootings. Oh, we've got to deal with mental health. Well, if only we really were serious about it and didn't associate it with military-style assault weapons.
1: Uh, yes, on the assault re- uh, weapon AR-15 front, I entirely um, agree with you, and, and so I, I'd separate that, mis- that misuse of the mental health issue, as, as you, uh, you know, cued it up from from the other ways in which uh, Mrs. Carter was involved. And I think that, again, because this was so long ago, it may be natural for many of today's Americans or today's people around the world to underappreciate how much difference that um, Rosalind Carter and some others made just because we now take it for granted. That we discuss mental illness as an illness, and that people deserve treatment, and that they uh, should not be blamed as as um, embarrassments or shameful people or those who are weak or whatever and th- this is so is now so ingrained that that's how people should should um, respond to mental um health challenges that it's hard to remember how different it was back um you know in in my boomer era childhood and a generation before that for for the carters and interestingly i I think there's an interesting pairing of two first ladies, Betty Ford and Rosalind Carter. Betty Ford became a tremendous um, advocate for for facing the illness of addiction. And, and and she did that through personal experience. She after she left the White House, um, she you know disclosed that she was being hospitalized for alcoholism and went through other addiction uh, therapy and just said this had been the curse of her life, leading to the the Betty Ford uh, Centers and all the rest. In Rosalind Carter's case, it doesn't seem that she had the kind of direct personal stake. She didn't have a child or immediate relative who who was suffering from mental illness and was uh, excluded in various ways. But in her speeches and her, her books, she's talked about how when she was exposed to public life when her husband was running for governor of Georgia, she started seeing both the conditions in which people were warehoused in these just you know, nightmarish places with, um, away from everybody else's view and the way their families were both affected and ashamed. And so she worked with scientists and public health people to say, how can we bring treatment and care to people who need treatment? And we can bring their families um, uh, out into um, to to the sunlight rather than the shadows of of dealing with an illness. So it didn't doesn't seem that there was some personal experience like Betty Ford's, but rather her experience as witness about um, how fellow citizens were suffering.
0: Well, there's certainly been an absolute outpouring of condolences from all the previous presidents. He, and Donald Trump himself, actually, was quite gracious in what he wrote. And I don't, I don't know
1: what... <laughs> That's a sentence I, didn't, I bet you didn't expect to say. <laughs> no,
0: no. Well, let me make up for it then. Uh, Trump himself, of course, on Friday attended his sister Mary Ann's uh, funeral. And she had, in her lifetime, refrained from publicly criticizing him, but in a recorded interviews she did with her niece, Mary Trump, she spoke scathingly of Trump, saying he has no principles, he has none, and she went on to say it's the phoniness and this cruelty, Donald is cruel and she made it sh- made sure that Trump did not speak and was not mentioned in the funeral service, and she also chose hmm. the hymns and the hymn was read aloud, uh, the words were printed on the program Quote The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, one little word shall fell him. Pretty powerful stuff. I imagine that that that'll be very different, the Rosen Carter's funeral.
1: Yes, well I, I had not known that. That is um tremendously powerful color, and it's also interesting about the Trump family that... that Apparently, the only people who have had direct connections with Trump, including family members who are not horrified by him, are his two sons, you know, dependent on him and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who had, you know, his own very complicated family matters as, you know, the son of of somebody who did time in in, in prison. And so it's... um, It is impressive that it has always been striking that Trump's sister was a federal judge and apparently a competent and respected one and it is impressive to hear her testimony.
0: Well, of course, uh, uh, Jared Kushner made billions out of of his father-in-law, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, uh, uh, well, again, the contrast between the Carter's and the Trumps is just so profound. Uh, it's really sad that such a good man and a, a good woman, and I, I imagine history will treat them well, and conversely, history will condemn Trump and his family, I assume, if not... Ha- uh,
1: you know, one 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 hopes, and there is this, um, the fact... That, there is a line among people who have lost presidential elections about um you know the famous lines when when walter mondale had this wipeout loss to um to ronald reagan in 1984 he came across george mcgovern who had had a wipeout loss to richard nixon uh, in 1972 and walter mondale asked george mcgovern um when does it stop hurting and george mcgovern apparently said well i'll let you know you know, it's something. It's a kind of wound you never get over, and I'm sure that for Jimmy Carter, as for the first George Bush, losing after one term is a blow. It's a kind of rejection that the rest of us never, uh, never experience. But the fact that that he he has now had nearly, you know, he, more than four decades as a post president, and until yesterday, all that time with his wife, meant that they have been able to both invent a new role. For people in that uh, that capacity, but also to entirely refashion the world's view of themselves, uh, of, of them. To he's now a uh, you know he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and they've nearly eliminated the scourge of Guinea worm from Africa, and they've done all they've been tributes for uh, for human rights and decency all around the world. So I think that that he had the bad luck of losing, but they together had. Uh, the kind of long life and successful life and, and admired life that very few of us, there's more than than anybody else can hope for.
0: Well, James Fellows, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: Uh, Ian, thank you for giving me the chance.
0: And again, I've been speaking with James Fellows, who's an award-winning author and national correspondent for The Atlantic. He previously worked as President Carter's chief speechwriter and was editor of U.S. News and World Report. He's written a number of books on media and politics, and his latest books are China Airborne, The Test of China's Future, and co-authored with his wife, Deborah, Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America that was made into an HBO movie any blogs at breakingthenews at fellows.substack.com, where his latest article is, Rosalind Carter Made a Difference. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the far-right populist, Javier Millet, who just won the presidency of Argentina decisively and who has vowed to exterminate inflation and hack into the state with a chainsaw. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Leopoldo Rodriguez, who's a professor of international and global studies and urban and public affairs at Portland State University, an expert on Argentina. His research focuses on international financial crises, neoliberal reforms, and democracy and sustainable development. Welcome to Background Briefing, Leopoldo Rodriguez.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well thanks for joining us Leopoldo and you grew up in Buenos Aires and Mexico City and what's happened in on Sunday in Argentina was pretty extraordinary after their final debate between the centre-left finance minister Sergio Massa and this peculiar fellow Javier Millet, this volatile uh, far-right wing libertarian who takes a chainsaw on his campaign rallies and promises to exterminate inflation and take a chainsaw to the state. Uh, he's now won, even though they, everybody thought he lost the debate, the final debate. He won yeah. by 50, basic by almost 56% to 44%. Mm-hmm. So this is a surprise upset. What do you attribute this to?
2: Well, it, it, it is 11 points. Uh, so it's a very strong uh, statement that the Argentine electorate has made against the administration of the current administration of Alberto Fernández, um, outgoing president. Uh, essentially, these four years of Alberto Fernández um, presidency have, well, first there was a pandemic, and, and then there have been significant uh, inflation. Inflation has tripled in these last four years since Macri, uh, the previous president, was uh, in in. In the presidency, so we, I think, people are very, very upset about uh, the way in which the last two um, uh, presidencies have gone. The last two, one was uh, juntos por el Cambio presidency, the Macri, and then the one by um, by Alberto Fernandez, was the Partido Justicialista, and Massa, the, the candidate running against Milei, that lost yesterday, uh, was a Partido Justicialista uh, candidate, and they they just. The people were just very fed up with both parties, and they sought somebody that promised change. Uh, although the way he has promised change is is rather violent, as you point out, uh, the chainsaw image is one of pretty uh, pretty uh, violent sort of uh, uh, take on on government. He used the term uh, he's anti caste, anti caste. Uh, the politicians, he thought of them or he spoke of them as being some sort of um, uh, the thieves and and a case of on their own that they were sort of like uh, above the rest of the population. So he, he has used a, a very um, violent rhetoric against the state and against politicians. But the interesting thing, I have to say the interesting thing about him is that he 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 had about 30% of the vote on his own as soon as he won the a chance to go to the runoff with uh, against Massa um he immediately uh, got the backing of the Juntos por el Cambio party which is a center right party that um that had been in government the, the previous presidential term and this is a party that actually got Argentina back uh with loans in, with the IMF and and imposed um some uh, neoliberal policies on the country so they back him up, and, and he stopped using this, this uh, anti-politician type of rhetoric. So it's, it's interesting to see how, um, how easily he became part of the, of the political caste that he so much criticized.
0: Well, inflation in Argentina is at 142.7%, which is extraordinary. And 4 in 10 Argentinians live in poverty, and so if you have those economic conditions and you run the current finance minister, mm-hmm. it's almost inevitable you'll lose, right, if the public is frustrated and, and, and angry.
2: Absolutely. And I think it was a mistake by the, uh, the, the party that's outgoing, the Partido Justicialista, to actually have Massa as the candidate for that very reason that you, you just point out. He had been the Minister of Economy for the last year and a half and, and under him, things didn't really improve much at all. So he, 50, 150% inflation rate, as I said, is three times what it was uh, when the current president came into office. So people voted against that. Um, but I think there's a, a deeper sense of um, of failure of Argentine politics in general. So it isn't just the circumstance. I think the circumstance is important. But people are really uh, tired of... Uh, parties that come in and don't don't do anything you know that they don't feel that that they have done much for the common people so this these firebrand uh, person comes in promising change and and they I, I don't think it's ideological I don't think Argentina has voted 55% of the population has voted for a right-wing government they have voted for change actually
0: right well we'll see what happens but it's not very encouraging who this fellow is and the way he behaves. And no. his ideas are just so radical and and quite often insane. And mm-hmm. his nickname is El Loco, right? The madman.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I believe that was the nickname he had in, in some of his jobs, previous jobs. Yeah. yeah.
0: And not surprisingly, uh, Brazil's Bolsonaro mm-hmm. supported his campaign. He's promised mm-hmm. to show up for the inauguration. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump just wrote, Quote, the whole world was watching and I'm very proud of you. You will turn your country around and truly make Argentina great again. Well, there is obviously a seminar there, right? With Trump promising uh, working-class Americans that he would improve their lives and Mm -hmm. stop the jobs going to China and and drain the swamp and build the wall. Mm -hmm. You name it. He made a bunch of insane promises, uh, none of which were fulfilled. And so... I suspect this guy is going to go the same way and he's he's even more crazy than Trump in the way his his ideas are to legalize the sale of organs and to cut ties with Argentina's uh, trading partners which happened to be the biggest ones Brazil and China mm-hmm. Close down a dozen ministries uh, the list could go on so what do you expect
2: the, the, there's two things there one, one thing he more Trump use a lot of uh, ideas that are not so free market, let's say, you know, uh, uh, protecting uh, works, uh, jobs from uh, Chinese with from com- Chinese competition, whereas um, Millet truly is more of a libertarian than Trump was. So that's one thing that I think is very different. He doesn't speak against immigrants. He doesn't talk about closing uh, trade. Um, he is against China and Brazil uh, because he considers. There's, well, China to be a communist nation, and then um, he's against having trade with communist nations apparently, although he says the private sector can do whatever, whatever they want. And Brazil, because Lula is in the government now, but if Bolsonaro was there, he would be happy, uh, probably. Uh, but he has said he would cut relations with Russia and, and China. Um, the other thing, and I, but the, the, can he do these things? Uh, you just mentioned the sale of organs, and there's a number of ideas that he has because of his libertarian ideology, uh, and, and but they are based on theory and, and not in practice. In the sense that he's not going to be able to implement those things. Nor nor does he really care to to have a free trading organs. Uh, he is now conditioned because he only has um, 38 representatives in the in the House of Representatives in Argentina, and uh, the Partido Socialista has 109. So he needs the support of the of Juntos por el Cambio, the the party uh, that was led. Into, in these elections by Patricia Bullrich as a candidate. Uh, and they, they only with them can they have a majority in the House to pass legislation. On the other hand, in the Senate, um, they are actually in a minority. The Partido Justicialista, the one that lost the election with Massa, uh, has 34 representatives, and La Libertad Avanza, the Party, only has eight. So they are, even even if they, they, they form uh, a bloc with the Juntos por el Cambio representatives who has 24, they will have 32 against 34. So in terms of legislation and ability to do things, uh, Millet is going to find himself in, in, a, in, a, in a hard spot, uh, which doesn't mean that he won't be able to pass a bunch of legislation, but he'll be conditioned by Juntos por el Cambio. Juntos por el Cambio is going to probably temper a little bit Uh, the attempts, the more radical ideas that that Millet brings. I'm I'm at least hopeful. The the, the flip side of this hope is that uh, governability in the next four years may be in question. Uh, And Argentina has a a history of having presidents uh, fall before the the end of the term, as you probably know. Right, but
0: one of the more disturbing, in fact, if not the most disturbing aspect of this new chainsaw-wielding right-wing populist, Javier Millet, who just won the presidential elections in uh, Argentina, is that, you know, it's taken decades for the Argentinians to come to terms with the dirty war in which 30,000 people were killed by the military regime. Um, Many disappeared. People were thrown live out of airplanes over the Atlantic it's just hideous what they did and the, you know the mothers in the square demonstrated forever and eventually the, there's a consensus in the nation that uh, it was a disgusting and criminal regime and there's been some retribution but now he's turning around and basically you know playing it all down and his mm-hmm. vice presidential running mate Victoria very well she's a far right conservative and she's also played down the dirty war and the general's culpability.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Victoria Villarreal is actually an advocate for the, for the military. And and one of the dangerous things uh, about me in power and having somebody like her as uh, his vice president is that he may not hesitate in using uh, uh, significant force to put down any sort of uh, political protest in the country. Uh, I think that's not beyond them. Uh, I think she may be seeking pardon and amnesties for the military that have been condemned. Um, So it it is a a defense uh, of of a very tragic and and horrendous moment in Argentine history that most people thought we had pulled behind by by sending some of these uh, military men uh, to jail. But um, it has, you know, this this election has has brought all of that back, and I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of pain out of this.
0: So, since you study international financial crises, and obviously Argentina has been in bad shape with a massive foreign debt and, you know, defaulting on loans, etc. Miller's plans are to dollarize the economy. I'm not sure what the hell that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is there any chance that he can turn things around? Uh, it doesn't seem likely. It just seems like he's just another Trump or Bolsonaro. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the, the the dollarization is strictly is is directly aiming for the inflation because I don't not to take it too technical, but the idea is here to adopt the dollar. So. Argentina does not have its own money, and hence, it cannot print money. And, and in, their, in the perspective of, of Millet, from his theoretical perspective, that means that there wouldn't be inflation. So by getting rid of Argentine Peso, adopting the dollar as the currency of Argentina, you will control the inflation. That, most economists in Argentina have discarded that as a possibility uh, for, for numerous reasons, at, this, at, the, at least at this moment. So that's not likely to happen, plus it will require significant changes um, legisl- legislative changes that he is not going to be able to make so I don't think he'll be able to do that. What Argentina does probably need is major changes in its uh, tax tax structure and 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 some probably some uh, control of um, of government expenditures because there is a significant deficit there so but i I think he will be able to do some of that, but I don't think he'll he'll be able to carry out a dollarization, uh, adopting the dollar.
0: But is Argentina like the United States, where the rich don't pay taxes or don't pay their fair share?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the, it's heavily the, the first of all, it's heavily based on uh, consumption taxes, so it's a regressive wow. tax. The the value added tax in Argentina is twenty one percent, so it's very high actually. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm. And but the reality is that uh, wealthy people avoid taxes in all sorts of ways, including, um, uh, for example, uh, people earn significant amounts of money from exports of soybeans and so on. And so one of the things that that they do is they declare the value of the exports to be lower than than it is. And then they get the difference paid in a bank account in Miami, for example. So right. then, the taxes that you pay is on a hundred dollars, but you export three hundred dollars, and and the other two hundred just don't show up their black mm. market base. So this this is very common, and uh, it's a it's a serious problem.
0: Right, but in the end, just to to summarize here, Leopoldo, is there something about Argentina that the, the Argentinians are susceptible to these kind of populist promises from? these so-called charismatic strongmen going back to Perón and Eva Perón, et cetera, is, are they susceptible to these kind of blandishments?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think Argentines uh, and very much, much of Latin America tend to, um, to follow these strong charismatic leaders uh, as a way out of the problems, uh, problems that are oftentimes structural and hence you no know, one person is going to be able to solve. So, yeah, this is clearly a problem for Argentina, as well as more more and more places seem to be falling for (laughs) these sort of uh, promises.
0: Right. Well, we could have Trump back in in a year from now, for God's sake. So we're not immune from this disease. I thank you for joining us, Leopoldo.
2: No, thank you so much. Thanks.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Leopoldo Rodriguez, a professor of international and global studies and urban and public affairs at Portland State University, an expert on Argentina. His research focuses on international financial crises, neoliberal reforms and democracy and sustainable development. We're going to take a station break. We're back with Elon Musk praising the election of the chainsaw-wielding madman who just got elected president of Argentina. We will look into Musk's open anti-Semitism, which is being spread to his 170 million followers on his private platform, X, formerly Twitter. <music> Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Wendy Veer, the President and Co-Founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the Chief Communications and Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wendy Veer.
3: Thank you, Ian. It's good to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Wendy. And on Wednesday, Elon Musk, the owner of X, or formerly Twitter, endorsed an anti-Semitic post, that alleged that, quote, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectic hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. And in response, Elon Musk posted, you have spoken the actual truth. So what he's endorsing there, Musk, is the great replacement theory, right? And remember at Charlottesville, when Trump said there were good people on both sides, the tiki-torch Nazis we're chanting Jews will not replace us. And that's what this is all about. So this is about as bad as it gets, isn't it?
3: I think it is. I think that we have a situation where a billionaire is has the ability to, to control the narrative or at least try to. And he is endorsing one of the most widespread and violent conspiracy theories out there. It's it's, it is a conspiracy theory that is one hundred percent connected to multiple mass shootings, and I don't know how um, you justify that.
0: Well, specifically, the mass shooting of Jewish worshippers at a synagogue right in Pittsburgh.
3: Yes, in Pittsburgh and in California, the, um, there was one in Poway. There, it's um, there, frankly there have been so many that people can hardly keep count of them. But they, it's a global issue. It, you know, with going from Christchurch in New Zealand to Germany, uh, two shootings there, four or five in the United States against Jews, Black people, and Latinos. It is without a doubt, the most dangerous conspiracy theory. And and indeed, uh, law enforcement agencies across the world have have described it so.
0: And of course, this is happening at a time when the climate is extremely tense vis-a-vis those who support Israel and those that support Palestine with counter-demonstrations. And there was an incident out here in north of Los Angeles where a Jewish man, and died in a scuffle with a Palestinian supporter and there were demonstrations over this weekend across the country. So it couldn't happen at a worse time. So Elon Musk is really, he's stirring the pot, isn't he?
3: Yes, I believe he is, absolutely. And you have a situation where, you know, I am fully in support of peaceful protest um, and in the enforcement of our First Amendment but we we cannot let things devolve into violence. And and the incident you just mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, you know, they, it, violence was not intended. But when you have these volatile situations and you have some people um, egging on or, or riling up the attendees, violence is often what you get. And when you have the richest man in the world with the largest platform, Endorsing these things. I mean, it's no surprise at all.
0: So, what do you think the consequences are? Because Media Matters pointed out that corporate advertisers like IBM, Apple, Oracle, and Comcast had their ads placed alongside anti Semitic content on X, formerly Twitter including praise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And that certainly has gotten the attention of these big corporations who are pulling advertising. And it's led Elon Musk to have a, have a meltdown. And now he's threatening a, to file a thermonuclear lawsuit against Media Matters on Monday. So he's going to war against Media Matters who merely reported what's happening on his website. Well, on on his platform,
3: I know. I think that it's, um, and and this is a, a, as I understand the situation. It is a fairly cut and dried thing. Here are these accounts. Here are these ads. Screenshot it. It happened right, and um, and and advertisers have every right and indeed the responsibility to not have their products next to this violent content because it can be perceived as an endorsement what you know what you have is elon musk going after civil society we, that in many ways cannot compete with a billionaire and so this is a in my view it is a it's a is an aspect of a move towards authoritarianism for all his for all of his preaching on free expression and free speech. He does exactly the opposite. And when you, and going after civil society, going after the speech of civil society is one of the hallmarks of, uh, you know, move towards authoritarianism. And when you, you, obviously we have people like Trump and others, but now you have big media doing it. It's, it is a terrible combination.
0: But it's not just uh, Elon Musk, of course. Tucker Carlson was doing an interview on his new channel, which is on X, by the way. Yes. Uh, his, his new show, on X. He was interviewed by Candace Owens, and he basically talked about white genocide and the Great Replacements Theory, which, of course, again, was what the tiki torch Nazis were chanting at Charlottesville when Trump said there were good people on both sides, and that was the chant, Jews will not replace us. What's happening, though, with Trump? I mean, he's outing himself as a Nazi, to put it bluntly. <laughs> what more evidence do you need? Here we have Thanksgiving coming up in a few days, and last Thanksgiving, what did Trump do? He had dinner with this leading young Nazi who's an, who is a Nazi, and are proud of it, Right.
3: Who was that? Was that um,
0: Nick Fuentes?
3: Yes, he was uh, part of the Proud Boys. And so this is the situation in my in my view. We have media figures with massive audiences um, who continue to polarize our uh, electorate, our society. And it's not just here in the United States. It's everywhere. And so media figures like Tucker Carlson or Hannity or uh, and I hesitate to go so far as to call somebody a media like Alex Jones but they have large audiences you know using media outlets and people believe them because everybody talks about them and then you have a politician like Trump and he's not the only one um, who there's lots and lots of our elected officials who on social media and interview and committee hearings who espouse something like the Great Replacement conspiracy theory saying that, you know, we have an invasion at our southern border, that people are diseased, and with Trump, him saying that he will go after the his political enemies, calling them vermin. These are all tactics to demonize communities and to move towards authoritarianism. And when you have a partner like Tucker Carlson in the media, who I have to say should take, he and Trump should take a lot of the responsibility for the acceptance among such a large um, segment of the conspiracy theory because they preached it for so long.
0: So the White House uh, did actually weigh in on this, and uh, the White House spokesman condemned Musk saying the abhorrent promotion of anti-Semitic and racist hate in the strongest terms which runs against our core values as Americans now given that some of these advertisers like IBM, Disney Lionsgate, the European Union have pulled their advertising and and Apple also has paused its advertising, is this going to impact uh, Musk I mean he's not having a good week, his uh, spaceship just the second one in a row just blew up on shortly after launch, and, you know, he's already lost a lot of advertising, which underwrites X, and then he blamed all that on the Jews, (laughs) meaning the the Anti-Defamation League. So he blamed that, but now he's suing Media Matters for, for actually saying exactly what is going on and having evidence. So is there any way that this demented billionaire who obviously is a racist, full of hate and a troll, is there any way that he'll have to come to terms with the fact that he's so heavily in debt, having bought X, twitter that he may come to his senses because of the bottom line?
3: I think that that might be a reasonable question if you were talking about somebody who was just conducting business, but I think it's gone far beyond just conducting business, I think he's on a mission. I, at this point, I believe that he he bought Twitter for a reason. And that was to interfere or influence what he saw as um, a, a, a public narrative going in the wrong direction. That's that's my view. And so does, and because he's not, it's now a private company we we don't know as much about the finances, we don't know what money is coming in or out. I mean, it seems reasonable that when you have giant brands like Apple and IBM pulling money, that there's going to have an impact on the bottom line. But, I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't see that changing his position. Does he sell Twitter and just get out of it altogether? I don't know. But as far as the way he's conducting himself on Twitter, I don't see that changing. What I am seeing is him working to silence people who do not have as much power as he does they the only power they have is the truth right and so that's he's working to do that i'll tell you what's an interesting that to, to go to add to your great to the great replacement discussion in the last week we exposed dozens of accounts of identitarians you know generation identity the same the people who push the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, but have ties to neo-Nazism. They had previously been banned by Twitter under the earlier ownership. They had all, almost all of them had somehow made it back to Twitter. We um, did a big report. We did had discussions, contacted Twitter. They brought somebody over there, Looked at the rules and the policies and brought all the accounts down, labeled them as per- permanently suspended. And within 24 hours, all but two of them were back up. So, what we have is a situation where you have these policies and he says what he will and won't stand for unless it interferes with his ideology and the people who make decisions are familiar with that. And so, no, I tell you, that was a long way to say, no, I don't think he's going to change
0: well just in closing though he seems to have a foreign policy agenda if not an ego that thinks he's a great world leader I mean, when the UN had its recent uh, meeting of uh, the heads of state he hung out with the Turkish dictator Erdogan he, he's obviously close to Putin uh, he actually personally sabotaged an attempt by the Ukrainians to go after the Russian Black Sea fleet firing Cruise missiles at civilian targets inside of Ukraine. He deliberately sabotaged that in order to help Putin. So he seems to be not just a menace to the country itself, but to its foreign policy. And by the way, Putin—they just passed a law equating LGBTQ Russians with, effectively, being terrorists. Uh, I know. And how in God's name can anybody support? that regime, it's so blatant. Of course, we know Donald Trump is also in Putin's pocket along with Elon Musk. But I thought that them, you know, basically equating LBGQ people with terrorists that ought to wake up the American people and particularly those on the Republican side who support Russia and who are about to cut off funds for Ukraine surely yeah. they have to know what they're dealing with it's so blatant
3: i think that that doesn't make have any impact on them whatsoever the ones you're talking about what we have is a situation not just here in the united states although it is we we are becoming the le- leaders in demonizing the lgbtq community particularly the trans community in an effort to show that our country in our society, our culture is deteriorating. It, you know, they also use things like critical race theory and and um, abortion. You know, just the various sort of hot button issues. But to for a ma- for Putin or even Orbán for that matter, how he is de- he's deemed Hungary to be a Christian nation um, that is uh, with traditional families, and now Putin going so far as to erratic try to eradicate the left you know they think of it as the the west is encroaching upon their society and that we're the enemy and i think that that is simply music to some of our political figures ears i don't think it has a bit of impact to those who already um uh endorse him in in whatever way it may be
0: well wendy veer i thank you very much for joining us here today
3: Thank you, Ian.
0: All right, we'll cut that in and uh, make that the uh, the the ending. That's okay. I'm with
3: sorry, it. Ian. It's terrible, isn't it? I mean, I don't I don't think oh I think it I think they're doing cartwheels around here, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. Well I'm g i am just i I'm glad I remembered that that yeah. tied that in because I think it's important.
3: Well hey, next time ask me so we can talk about Christian nationalism and Project Twenty Twenty Five.
0: Yeah, and and uh, none other than Mike Johnson, right?
3: Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it
0: true that he has a Christian nationalist flag flag in his office?
3: Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's right outside his. Um, it's, well, it's a. I mean, is he doesn't think of it as Christian nationalist? You know, he just thinks of it as a commitment to his evangelical uh, world and right. belief in God and all of that. It's outside the the speaker's office now. That's right.
0: Good Lord. Well, Wendy, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much. It's good to talk to you again.
0: This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
4: The guy that lived next door in 305